This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey folks, welcome back to Inclusive Collective, a podcast where we explore the complexities of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the business world. Um, Our first season, um, if you've been listening, has been centered around startups and venture capitalists. I am your co-host, Nadia Butt. I'm a belonging strategist and organizational development consultant. And I'm Rob Hadley. I'm a people and culture strategist and DEI analytics consultant. We are on episode nine. Can you believe we've co- we've we've come to episode nine, Rob? <laughs> yeah, no, we haven't been canceled yet. They don't do that, right? We haven't been right? canceled. Yeah, I did have a question for you. I was thinking about this the other night because you are an analytics person. Do do you say data or data? And what's the right word? <laughs> data? Do I say do you say data? No, data. No, I don't. You say don't say data. I say like I think data is is people with either a like an English, I think it's like an English background or somewhere outside the United really? States. Really? I did yeah. not know that. I always used to get confused because at my old company, someone would always, there was one person who actually was British, would always say data. And so I started to say data there you a go. lot. There you go. But I feel like it's data. And then I think of the Goonies. Do you remember <laughs> the Goonies, the movie where the guy was called data? You mean? Yeah. Or was it da- called data? Yeah, data. The, <laughs> it's called one the, of them. The the young man. Yeah, of- <laughs> and he was like the nerdy yeah. guy who knew like, you know, all the things. He had the gadgets. He's really, really smart, yeah. You know, that movie is incredibly inappropriate. I just uh, tried to watch it with my nine-year-old Why? son. And it's, uh, it's just completely inappropriate. Yeah, it starts with like a jailbreak scene oh, yeah. and like a faked <laughs> suicide. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of non-inclusive behaviors oh, in that movie. Oh, you're so right. Like, I didn't even think of that. Pretty much throughout the it, movie. That's kind of sad because yeah, no. like my... Steven Spielberg has a lot to answer <laughs> for, for that one. Yeah, that's so sad. I'm so sad to hear that. But you know what? A lot of eighty, mo- yeah, a yeah. lot of eighties movies and nineties TV shows like Friends are kind of inappropriate too, like and in, in, not inclusive. I thought that that could be. See, I thought that could actually be season two, where we just look at old movies and point out all of the non inclusive things. In, in I kind of so love that. Keep that on Let's your board. Keep that on board. And you know what, listeners? <laughs> if you think that that would be something interesting, let us know. So, so should we should we get back to startups and and yes. founders? If you've been tracking, we are at the point where we've been spending some time talking to founders, getting their unique perspectives on raising capital, on their fundraising efforts, or hearing some of their uh, really interesting stories about going out and seeking money in order to build their venture. So our guest today is Melissa Corto. As a special education teacher in New York City, Melissa found herself drowning in hours and hours of paperwork taken away from her passion, which was being with students. 
Melissa and another special ed teacher felt it would be great to have a tool, an app, that organizes all this paperwork for teachers in a one-stop platform. Teachers would get the tools uh, they needed to diagnose and understand neurodivergent students, kids with, say, perhaps like ADHD or dyslexia, and strategies for the classroom. From there, Melissa and her co-founder launched the EdTech startup Education Modified. By helping teachers, they could help their students. With an education background and very little formal business education experience, the EdTech startup founder hit the road to raise funds for her new venture. We began our conversation by asking Melissa how she was received by investors as a woman and as a former teacher. There's two things that really stuck out to me as I reflect on fundraising. Um, one is that there's a double, if not triple or quadruple standard, depending on the type of founder that you are when raising money. And then um, also raising money in the ed tech space. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when people first started listening to me, they're like, oh, that's like a really cute idea. Mm -hmm. Or like, oh, it's like this, this like, you know, fun classroom teacher, like trying to like build a startup, like how so degrading. <laughs> right. It's, yeah, it's right. To, yeah, to hear that. Um, and I mean, I, I literally had investors in a boardroom being like, wow, you should be so proud of yourself, Ugh. but like not give me any money. And I had much. one investor ask me if I could only do teacher math at, in one meeting. Oh, wow. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I had a lot of mentors and folks who, you know, were trying to like coach me and like help me and for better or worse, you know, gave me advice that was just the reality of um, the situation. So like, yeah, not like don't bring a backpack to your pitch, you know, always wear a suit. Um, maybe you should try lipstick. Um, oh, wow. things like that. Yeah. Okay. That was very, um, you know, like would never happen to a male founder. Right. Mm -hmm. But then also, yeah, coming from the classroom was a different type of experience. And, and to be honest, I was very naive to it all. Like I had no idea. The only thing I knew about fundraising was what I had heard about Silicon Valley. And, you know, you read, you know, all the things that you could possibly read. It's like, oh, just have this like vaporware and go raise $2 million and then you can, you know, and then you can build product right. or then I would walk into a meeting and they would be like, oh, well, you don't have any revenue. Mm. And I was like, well, isn't that why I'm raising money? Yeah. I'm so confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny because yeah. as, as a, uh, as a man, you're told not to wear a suit, right? Like don't look oh, too yeah. overly Show professional. Up in sneakers. So, yeah. so more, mm -hmm. so uh, you said there's a double standard. One is, so first, again, coming from an education background, woman from an educational background, and then the, the other piece was the ed tech side of it. Mm -hmm. What was the uh, conflict there? Yeah. And again, it was something that was kind of constantly a moving target in what the investor landscape was at the time. So when I had entered LearnLaunch, which was the accelerator in Boston, um, it was sort of right after like the big ed tech accelerators had kind of launched their first programs in which, you know, companies like Class Dojo were able to raise $5 million like out, out of the gate. And that bubble had kind of started to burst already when I was entering. And so there was this constant like moving goalpost of, well, you need to have X amount of users or you need to have X amount of revenue or you need to have X amount of you know, monthly recurring revenue, or now you need to have annual recurring revenue. And it was just a constant change of what the expectations were for um, what I needed in order to raise money. In the ed tech space, I think people got really scared when products aren't delivered. And the thing about the ed tech space is that if you can enter it, 
it's a very sticky market if your product works and teachers want to use it and it helps students or teachers in classrooms, then you can stay for a really long time. But the the hard part is getting your foot in the door. And so I think the investor landscape kind of realized that at the time that I was trying to raise money. And so a lot of people were kind of backing away from ed tech investment as I was trying to sort of enter into. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Melissa, I'm curious. So, you know, you mentioned that you had these kind of experiences where maybe you had to people were coaching you to like look a certain way so that investors may find you more appealing. I don't even know how that makes that connection. (laughs) But okay, so they coach you on these things. And so like, as you go through this journey where you pitch, you you put on your lipstick and you pitch your idea (laughs) and you're still, um, you bring all kind of the evidence that you, you know, to showcase like your, your product and your idea and, and looking for the funding and they are now like declining you. Um, do they give you any types of feedback in terms of what is it that could make you investable um, to move forward with? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is no, a lot of it was not. The majority of the feedback that I got was come back when you have 20,000 in monthly recurring revenue mm-hmm. or come back when you have you know, a hundred thousand of annual recurring revenue or whatever those numbers were. And I, you know, it's like, well, I need money to do that, right? Like that's exactly why. And then, you know, you hear these other stories of like, well, other, other industries, like you don't even have a product in the market or you don't even have revenue. You just have users and, you know, you can go raise like $5 million. Well, I have, I have users and I have revenue, but it's not enough. And so that was really sort of the common thread of that. I did receive some other advice. There was a lot of, um, you don't have a technical co-founder. We like need to make sure that like you have a technical co-founder in order to be investable. And so we like went that route in which um, we actually had um, a, a really terrible experience in hiring sort of like a consulting firm that acted as like our CTO at the time and they didn't listen at all and really didn't follow the product and, and wanted to move to the consumer market and start selling to parents. And it was like, oh. nope, that's not what we're building. Mm-hmm. And so that held us up for a long time. Um, and, and I realized that in order to get what they were asking to have like a product that was generating recurring revenue, I didn't really need a CTO. I needed like a really solid product designer and an mm-hmm. engineer. Okay. And so I ended up getting that. And then I've now, that engineer is now my CTO that has under, engineers working um, under him. So um, oh, interesting. that turned, that turned out fine. Yeah. But yeah, I would say for the majority, we would get, we would get, I would get slivers of, of good pieces of feedback here and there. Um, but the hard part is the investors, there's, there's very few investors that have actually sold to schools themselves. Okay. So tell me and, more yeah. about that. Like, how do you go around that? How do you overcome knowing that there are very few investors, like, do you have to align to something else to influence their decision then? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> what, what we did was we, we, we ended up going after grant funding and federal funding instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we, we raised the money from the few angel investors who believed in us and a couple um, social impact groups. So at the time, right. That was really where ed tech was starting to align with like more of the social impact venture groups. Traditionally, those that were doing like climate change or poverty and, you know, different um, sort of like healthcare stuff, 
they really started seeing ed tech as sort of really impact driven and we really fit that model. So yeah, we, we ended up going more towards like the impact um, driven investors. So we're funded by um, the social impact fund at Tuck, um, the business school at Dartmouth and a few of those. So that was one way just kind of avoid the the sort of traditional VCs that don't have the experience of, of you know, ed tech B2B. And then, yeah, and then we, we went for, we competed for federal grant money instead. And that's what we ended up doing. Did you ever think about like giving up just because it's, I mean, it's great. You went that route of getting the funding from, you know, the grants and so forth, the government funding, but like all of those times, I would imagine like it, you hit, you're almost like hitting this brick wall. <laughs> what? Yeah. You know, did you ever <laughs> Was it ever a thought like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to stop and not continue? Not really. I mean, I'm sure it was like a thought that like had like like gone through my conscious, but not really. It was kind of just what I, it was just so clear that this is what I wanted to do. And I, I think that one of the personality types or if someone like tells me I can't do it <laughs> and I want to do it more. Yeah. And so that's kind of where that is. So I just have like a running list of like, I told you so that <laughs> I'm just kind of keep over here and you know th- i mean there was definitely times where i was like wow like if 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 this doesn't happen then like maybe it's a sign to like get like to like give up you know like i at, at a certain point there was like okay i'm gonna take some realistic steps back and be like okay if this like if this doesn't work then maybe we need to like look at a different direction right or maybe this needs to be you know something else and the second that i was able to like let that go and like kind of have that like freedom then it like worked out and now uh, we're doing really well. Nice. So. Melissa, your your funding source or your funding mix of grants and social impact and in, in investment uh, funds, do you have any other traditional investors as well at this point or? We have a couple um, angel investors okay. and, um, but most, um, so individuals, some mentors through Learn Launch, um, they're still very active mentors of mine. You know, I meet with them on a monthly or quarterly basis, but all of the, like actual investment groups have been social impact groups. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. I I guess my question there is, what would you tell? So, you know, as you started this process, if you could go back, what, what are the things that you learned about each of those different types of funding? that you wish you had known then or, you know, advantages or drawbacks of any of those types of funding as you've learned over the years? Yeah. I mean, definitely the social impact groups looked at my background as a teacher, as an asset in that I was building a product that would solve a real problem, therefore be successful and make, you know, a, a successful business where some of the other groups were that put doubt in their mind of whether or not I could like run a company or build a team or build a product or sell or, you know, um, where, yeah, the, the social impact groups and the, those types of investors really saw that as the, the and, when, and asset when was as this, when, when was this, uh, this period? Yeah. This so this was between, yes. Okay. So it was between 20, gosh, 2016 and 2019 was when I raised most of the money. And then we won a really big federal grant in um, 2019 that um, was, thank you. Yeah. It was um, a total of 1.1 million over four years. Yeah. I mean, post post pandemic where we all got to teach our kids for a few months, right? Like we all know (laughs) that teachers are the smartest 
most capable people <laughs> in the whole world, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it could, I, it's, it's hard to imagine a world where that is considered a drawback. There's definitely a little bit of truth to like, well, you've never run a company or you, you know, you were a teacher or what, you know, whatever. Um, and then I think it's a matter of getting to know founders. Um, I think one of the most successful sort of um, investor relationships and things that I have were investors who were founders themselves. Oh, interesting. Um, mm -hmm. What was it like to receive that grant? So like, can you walk me through that, that, journey and process where you pitch and then do you get a phone call or an email that's like hey, an like, email what is it oh i know exactly where tell i was standing me, oh, yeah. tell me that whole story i'm so curious like what that was like and i feel like that's going to be super inspiring for our listeners yeah i mean so i think one thing to be really um clear about and applying for federal grants is the application process is really intensive so you know, this is particularly through the small business innovation research um, with the Institute for Education Sciences. So it's at the U.S. Department of Ed. I think our application was 87 pages long and it comes in a phase one. And then once you complete the phase one, you can then complete the phase two. So the phase one was like $200,000. And then the phase two was um, $925,000. And so we completed the phase one. We put in our application for the phase two. That was definitely one of those moments where I was like, okay, like if we don't, like if we don't get this, then like maybe we'll have to like look at a different path or, you know, maybe we'll do something else with Edmod or maybe we won't do it. Like, I don't know, like we'll see. You put in the application in like December and then you don't hear to, for like three or four months. So it was like April and I was at a conference selling at a booth in Maine. Oh. <laughs> um, that was where some, some of our first customers were mm -hmm. um, in Portland, Maine. And I got an email that was just like, congratulations, you, you know, and here's a contract and you sign it and we're going to send you $900,000. Oh my gosh, I love that. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what were you yeah. feeling? Like, what was it like? Did you, who did you call first? Like, oh, I cried. <laughs> I cried. Yeah, I, I would too. Um, yeah. I mean, the other thing is it's non-dilutive funding, right? So now it's like, there's no ownership stake that's attached to that, oh. to that money either. And so, yeah, I mean, I immediately um, forwarded it to my co-founder and called my co-founder. Um, I called uh, my mom. I called one of our mentors, my, one of my mentors at the time, who's a board member now. And it was really a big turn. It was really a big turning point for us because it was, you know, I had spent almost, gosh, two and a half years trying to raise like five hundred thousand mm. dollars for Edmond from investors wow. and, you know, traditional. Yeah. So that was, yeah, it was really, it was really a big turning point yeah, for that's us. That's a huge milestone. Yeah. I don't know yeah. a ton about the grant space, grant process. The way you described it sounds pretty arduous. <laughs> and so, how would you? You know, how would you counsel other entrepreneurs or social impact entrepreneurs about whether that that process is worth it? It's almost almost like like a, somewhat of a lottery ticket. And so yeah. would, you, would you say it's worth going through that? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think the application process is worth it. I actually just talked to my co-founder again because our, our money has run out from that time period. And so we're thinking about, you know, applying again and um going through the application process is really arduous, but you you are applying to do research on your product. And so it, it really focuses you to think about what you're building, why you're building it, what the theory of change is, um, what you expect, how you, um, you know, anticipate the market will receive it, what they'll pay for it, you know, all, all of those types of things. And so 
it's a really, really valuable exercise, I believe, for founders. It's very time consuming. I would recommend that you, you know, we partner with a research institution for the application. So we partner with West Ed, um, it's a third party nonprofit research group. Um, but unless you have grant writing experience yourself, I would definitely recommend like contracting that out to get that type of mm-hmm. help. But the application process is, it, it, I mean, it's really competitive. It's less than, I believe it's less than 8% chance of winning it. Um, and it usually, they say it usually, usually takes two to three years for an application to get accepted. So you apply several times in a row or several years in a row. But every time we do an application, um, it really crystallizes our path for what, what we're doing with the product and how we want to to measure it. So even if we wouldn't, if, you know, if we were to apply it again, even if we didn't get the funding, the, the application itself is really, um, you know, is I think is a really valuable exercise. Oh, that's great. Very cool. You mm-hmm. talked about the education space and the investors not being able to make the connection or not necessarily knowing enough about that space. Would you say it's even one level removed when you start talking about neurodivergent students or the special education space and you're, and you're nodding. So say, say more about yeah. that. And, and, uh, we've had some of our entrepreneurs talk about a, a cultural disconnect between, you know, something that they're doing and then the class of investors that they're, that they're pitching to. What, did you see anything uh, like that that made, makes you, uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, there is definitely something, yeah. So there's this like first level of, oh, I'm talking about an ed tech and B2B business that you're a little bit disconnected from. And then the second I say special ed, then there's like this other level of disconnect. So, you know, our product is really for um, all types of students with special needs. So we're talking about you know, the one in five that have dyslexia or ADHD where Typically, when when folks hear special ed, or at least when the investors that I were speaking to heard special ed, they think of like Down syndrome or like severely autistic, which we also do serve in mm-hmm. our products. But that's not where I was pitching from, like from a business standpoint, the population that we were talking about. There was like the one or two occasion where an investor like had a student or had a child who had an IEP or had mm-hmm. a child who had dyslexia or ADHD in which like the light bulb would go off um, a little bit. But for the most part, it was definitely, um, definitely a d- disconnect. And also, yeah, the, this like cultural difference of like, well, like I went to school in the suburbs and there was like a separate class for those kids. And like, that's like a different, you know, where I was, you know, I taught in New York city and mm-hmm. like one of the most diverse classrooms you could you know classes you could ever see and that was just like not the same thing that we were talking about so yeah I think there was there was levels of of disconnect um and I was constantly trying to you know work on the pitch and 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 use different words and different approaches and different language to try to to try to make that connection um but it often fell pretty flat what tactically would you would you tell an entrepreneur if they are trying to make that that connection uh, bridge that uh that gap yeah, I mean, I think really do a lot of research <laughs> on the investors that you're talking to before you go and and, and meet with them. Um, that was something that I kind of learned along the way, but like was not intuitive to me to like be like, what type of investor are you? Because I didn't know the, I didn't know the difference really. And so definitely doing that. Um, I think the other 
thing is like like taking an approach in which kind of like an like an in your shoes sort of like the most successful pitch that I ever did was actually one of the learn launch demo days because I feel like I could really connect with the audience in which I would present myself as a teacher Mm -hmm. in front of a classroom and the audience or the boardroom of investors would be my classroom and so I would like really role play like really had to like put it in the shoes of like I'm a teacher and you're my classroom and you have ADHD and you have dyslexia and you're on the autism spectrum and you're, you know, an English language learner. And I have to do all of this paperwork and meet all of your needs. And here I am like using these like paper binders. Oh, and, I love files. That. and then they were like, Oh, okay. Oh, I love that. But that like, the simulation <laughs> is so key. Right. I love yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. But it took me a while to figure that out yeah. to be honest. So. So Melissa, we usually ask our, our, our founders, our guests to, provide us with a little bit of advice in the form of, uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I feel like you've offered so much advice so far. So, uh, and we've been talking mostly about raising capital. Any, any advice outside of raising capital uh, that you would share with someone, uh, you know, if you go back and, and talk to yourself, you know, several years ago when you were just starting very broadly, what advice would you have for yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think building a broad network I, I think one of the things that um, entrepreneurs kind of feel like they have to do, I don't know if it's part of their nature or not, is to like reinvent the wheel, right? Of like, oh, I'm just going to figure this out myself or I'm just going to do this myself where um, that's not, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, so leveraging the network, um, one of the things that really stuck with me when I decided to stay in Boston was because I had one of my mentors say like, did you find the people who want to support you? like stick with that, right? Like don't like go like knocking on, you know, lots of people's doors, you have this community here. Um, So definitely leveraging that. And then I think finding your first team members who will like take the risk with you um, and really like jump uh, head first into it um, is really important. And something that was so, so valuable on what mentioned that we found an engineer who is now our, our CTO and, and finding those first people and treating them really well and making sure that they're part of that that journey with you is something I'm really glad that I was able to to do and find because finding those people is hard. And so once you do find them, make sure you can hold hold on to them. Sure. Um, so, Melissa, I, I have kind of a final question here. Um, is there a, a resource, a tool, um, a book, something like a just something that you have found helpful um, throughout your journey that you that you would recommend to our audience as it relates to um, raising capital. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of things that I kind of always go back to in um, thinking about like you know raising money, and you know, there's definitely a couple of books that I, that I could reference. They're they're very ed tech specific. The the most valuable resource that I have learned in t- talking about whether it's raising capital, I say particularly when it's raising capital, is talking to other founders, Mm. especially um, other founders who are women or of color or in the ed tech space or whatever space that you're in and and learning directly from them. Um, I think the most valuable resource is to, to be able to talk to someone else who's really been in your shoes. And, and the lessons that they have learned, um, if you, know, you can find, if you're lucky enough to find someone who will share their experience and, and help, um, I think that that is by far, that has been the most valuable resource for me. Melissa, that's fantastic because I, I 
I bet we have at least one listener that will listen to your story and <laughs> and find that to be more really than inspiring. one listener. More than one, but like one in There's, that particular demographic. I know like five. <laughs> at least one that will at least find, okay yes right. I, I would say more than that, Melissa. More than I would that. Say more. Yeah. yeah, but we'll find your story to be inspiring and helpful, and maybe even reach out to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was incredible. Um, Melissa Cordo, it has been a huge pleasure having you today. Thank you for joining us on Inclusive Collective. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Welcome back uh, from our conversation with Melissa Cordo of Education Modified. This is the time of the show where we converflect. Uh, and Nadia, just just a real quick announcement. We don't okay. actually say the word converflect, right? Like we, that's not like how we talk for real. This is a, that's a showbiz thing that we came up with, right? Maybe, but like I love the word <laughs> and I really think Merriam-Webster should add it and, and put Maybe. us as the people who coined the term converflections. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, right? I just don't want people to think that I walk around, you know, and actually <laughs> like, say words conreflect? like that. I don't conjoin words except on the podcast. Except on the podcast. That makes sense. So I loved, uh, lo- loved, loved. you know, Melissa was like rapid fire, mm-hmm. great advice, a lot of really interesting things and, and stories that she told about raising money. I wanted to ask you, I just had a, I had a reaction you know, at the, at the very beginning when she talked about some of her experiences and how people would tell her either to dress up or uh, to put lipstick on. Yeah. I just wondered what, did you have any any thoughts or just you know, just emotions um, I, from hearing I had that? so many, like, <laughs> reactions to the, I mean, you heard it in the episode, but yeah. um, th- it is so demeaning and condescending for anyone to 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 give advice on how you should appear or how you should look and I actually remember like going back to like my college days of like when I was entering the workforce and people would tell women you'd have to get your nails done and you should have your hair done a certain way and you should wear a certain suit and I feel like there are double standards in in general when it comes to male and female in the workplace I think it's getting better over time but so for someone to give advice to wear lipstick it to when they're pitching or when they're doing a presentation, it's like, well, what who are these inv- investors that are really only caring about what the the entrepreneur looks like or how they're presenting? And right. if they have lipstick on their face like that to me is is very um, it's just super condescending and degrading. What what were your reactions to that? Because as like a male. Well, it was just, you know, like I said, I wasn't necessarily prepared for it. It was just another interesting reminder about the different ways that and the different standards that men and women are held to. Like I said, men are told not to mm-hmm. get too dressed up, right? right? And so, the, and, and the expectation is uh, <laughs> wear, wear cool clothes and tight fitting, you know, like yeah. look like, uh, you know, like almost like a rock star and, uh, <laughs> yeah. or wear the hoodie or something like don't, you know, don't put on the suit jacket. And, and so it's just a very different way that it's approached uh, between men and women. And obviously, again, this is a single story and it's not always like that, but it's just a, it was just an abrupt reminder for me that, that uh, it's, it's, it's certainly different. My experience is a lot different than, than others. Yeah. You know, so this actually makes me think, t- I want to touch upon kind of this 
crucial element of mentorship, right? So Melissa mentions kind of she mm-hmm. had these people or these folks that were coaching her. And to me, mentor, mentorship and coaching is an inclusive value. Um, so getting the right coaching and advice from people that have either had previous experience or particularly maybe in the industry or field that you're in can be very valuable. Um, and sure. Right. And so as we think about the fundraising phase, so like what Melissa kind of was discussing in the startup world, I'm sure depending on who is giving you that advice, it can be super beneficial. So when you're receiving mm. coaching and hopefully there's some form of trust between you and that person providing that coaching or that advice, if there's not, then you're likely not going to be receptive to the feedback. And I've learned this lesson the hard way, and it seems like Melissa did too. Sometimes coaching that you receive is just one person's opinion versus something like actually value add or something that mm-hmm. would, mm-hmm. you know, really give you or provide value to you down the road. And so, you know, something like if the mentor tells you to put on lipstick to pitch an, an investor, I, I would probably encourage that person to go get a new mentor. Especially, yeah, it's, it's time for a different yeah coach. Yeah, it's time for a different coach, especially if like that person doesn't seem to align to your values. So you know, when we think about mentoring, it provides this opportunity of like skill development, um, an opportunity to network with different groups of people or um, who help kind of inform knowledge or learning and discussion. And for Melissa, she didn't have um, that business background, right? And she recognized that. She, that she recognized that she needed a community of kind of fellow ed tech founders um, where there were resources available, this connection of people and like the networking um, to really help grow her business and herself. Um, and in many ways, it sounds like the accelerator program provided that to her. So my my tip to entrepreneurs, I think, who are starting out based off of our conversation with Melissa would be find a mentor someone you can build trust with to get advice from, and then perhaps look at into an accelerator community uh, for that additional support. Right. At their best, the accelerator experience provides that coaching, resources, things that you could not get on your own. And especially if you don't have a business background, it can be really valuable uh, for people that are that are new to business and entrepreneurship, so I, I love that advice. Thanks, thanks for uh, for distilling that for us, Nadia. Absolutely, and I'm sure our listeners will uh, appreciate it. So we'll wrap it up here. Thanks so much to Melissa Cordo of Education Modified. That's it for this week's episode. The Inclusive Collective Podcast is a production of Refillion Media. If you like what you hear. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So please shoot us an email at info at And you can also find us on Instagram at Inclusive Collective Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley. And I'm your other co-host, Nadia Budd. We'll see you next week.